Ladies, gentlemen, settle on in. Sit down right over there. Prop your feet up and get yourself set for a new edition of the Selby is Godcast with TJ Zuppi. That's me, Zach Meisel. That is him. And you can find us by finding us on Twitter at TJ Zuppi, at Zach Meisel, at Selby is Godcast. And of course, you can subscribe to the show, Apple Podcast, Google, Stitcher, and Spotify. What is up, brother? I'm stressed. It's the last week. I didn't think we would ever get here. I don't know who to vote for for MVP. I don't know who the Indians are going to face in the playoffs. I don't know what playoff baseball is going to be like in this weird post-apocalyptic world. I'm stressed. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing better than you because I don't have to worry about the MVP vote. Oh, man. I'm, and I'm following along as everyone is starting to lay out a case for a player or two or maybe why you shouldn't go in a different direction. And I think it's especially difficult for you, and I don't envy you in this situation because you have two candidates from the team that you cover. So do you want to look like a homer, even if you're not being a homer, and if it's a a case where you have a strong opinion on why someone should be the MVP, but it is the guy that you cover, you're going to look like a homer. But if you don't vote for that guy, your own fan base is going to come calling, and they're going to be out there with pitchforks and ready to get after your ass. So I don't... I don't envy being in your position. Yeah, and they already think I'm way too negative, as one uh, follower pointed out the other night before blocking me because I tweeted that Tristan McKenzie's velocity was down. Oh, you negative Nelly. Um, it's, we talked about this a little bit last week, right, with just the Shane Bieber element of it and how he factors in and whether it makes sense to vote for... Yeah, throw all that out. Everything we talked about last uh, two weeks ago. Get rid of it. Well, why? Because he gave up a three-run homer? <laughs> and it was all his fault. Yeah. He, wait, no. I have a conspiracy theory about that. We'll come back to that. Shouldn't but, have been in the game. But, well, you know, now you have Jose Ramirez in the fold. And the main crux of our discussion last week was talking about how you're evaluating Bieber and what he's done in 11 or 12 starts against what hitters have done in 50-some games. And now the Indians have one of those hitters who is produced a lot in 50-some games, and trying to compare and contrast him and Jose Abreu and Tim Anderson and Mike Trout and Anthony Rendon and DJ LeMayhew, and it's tough. It's really tough. Well, how about the fact that it can it can happen because you're talking about a condensed season, only 60 games, so a really just a nuclear week for Jose Ramirez lifts him so far up the leaderboard because we're not talking about huge samples yet. And so a good couple of weeks, I, I sat here a couple of weeks ago and said that Jose Ramirez wasn't having a, a typical Jose Ramirez type season. And you know what? I was right because now it's how ha- it's an even better season than what an, a typical Jose Ramirez season would be at least evaluating it in WRC plus standards. So, when you're talking about a shorter season, so much can change so very quickly because we're still in a part of a, a season in a, in a normal year where you'd have so much more time for everybody to get to their, to, to use the Titoism, get to their levels. But now, because we're talking about a condensed season, a good couple of weeks or a bad start for Shane Bieber could completely change the entire narrative. And you're trying to evaluate MVPs and awards based on this? That's ridiculous, but it's also amazing and fun and why I think this is such a compelling uh, MVP controversy now about who everybody's going to vote for. I have a suspicion that you're going to see a lot of different ballots, I think. Because, like, the argument for Jose Ramirez has a lot to do with the advanced metrics, right? You know, his war, his WRC+, plus, um, his base running. running. Yeah. Yeah. So... Do you, if you're a voter, do you take that stuff into consideration? Do you care? Or are you one of the voters who's just going to look at home runs and RBIs and batting average and go with Jose Abreu? I mean, it, it's... And then you could have people who put Bieber in there. Because that's the other thing. The thing that makes this even more complicated, if you don't put Bieber first, do you put him on at all? Do you, If you put him like third or fourth, What's your justification for that? How do you... <laughs> I understand if, if you put him first, you're, you're putting him first because he has been so dominant and it's very rare for a pitcher to lead all position players in war or to, ha- to prove that he has made such a great impact every time he's gone out there. So I understand if you put him first, but if you put him like in the middle of your ballot, I don't understand what, what is your argument. What is your, 
what are you basing your your ballot on? So I, I'm trying not to think about this too much until the season ends. That's typically my process. But I'm already having nightmares about the nightmares I'll be having <laughs> on Sunday night. <laughs> Nightmareception. I, I am totally with you as as far as how do you separate the pitcher from the hitter in this year. In the past, I've been somewhat reluctant to give too much credit to pitchers in the MVP voting because I think there is something to a guy that plays every day as opposed to having a lot of uh, impact on one particular game. I wrestle with that, but also if you're trying to separate, and let's say you do look at Abreu and, and Ramirez, two guys that are up there in Fangraph's war, and if you look at Abreu and, and you're trying to find a separator between him and Ramirez, maybe one place you could look is the, the win probability added because it gives you a sense on when the production came. You know, If you're just looking at war, or even if you're just looking at batting average and home runs, all that stuff, you don't get any context on when those sorts of things came. So if you care at all about how the production actually changed the course of games. You might look at win probability added and see that Abreu is much higher than Ramirez is. And so maybe that gives Abreu an edge over Ramirez if you were just looking at the context of when these things happen. But if that is the case, then you would also look at Bieber, who leads everybody in the American League in win probability added. So how could you say that Abreu gets the edge over Ramirez because his stuff matters more in context to what actually was taking place in the games and when that production came and take Bieber off the table? I don't know how you would separate those things. I, I don't know... As you sit here today, how you would rank, that's just, the, in my mind, the guys that are in the top three, but the guys that are in fourth and fifth, like you can make a strong case for why someone in sixth place actually should be first on the ballot, maybe more so than, than in, in some time. The down ballot votes and the order in which you put guys is also going to be super important to who actually wins this award. Yeah, it sure would be pretty simple if you had an AL MVP vote this year. Um, what's interesting is if you do allow yourself to include pitcher, I mean, I, you could say, okay, well, if you look at Bieber's numbers, like there are some pitchers in the national league who are having similar seasons, Trevor Bauer, Jacob deGrom, um, was it Corbin Burns is having a really good season, which nobody even knows about. The Brewers have been so under the radar. Um, and, and then I think the question would be, okay, well, but, but you can't put all of those guys in the MVP race, too. So is, is Bieber that much better than those National League? Like, it, it's a weird thing. I mean, because the National League MVP race has a handful of candidates, too. But among position players, do you include pitchers in that? In the American League, it's easier because Bieber's the only one who would deserve consideration. So I, I don't know. It's, it's such a mess. It gives me a headache to even think about. Um, and I'm not sure, like it's, I, I really think it's going to be fascinating. It might be a close, close race between a handful of guys. The one thing I wanted to ask you, TJ, is do you buy into the method of, oh, Abreu and Tim Anderson will split votes because they won't know which white sock to vote for. <laughs> so that'll benefit Bieber or someone I mean, else. Do you buy into that? Perhaps locally, but I don't think no one really looks at it. Well, I'm only going to vote for one white sock. White socks. I never know the plural on that. I'm only going to vote for one guy from that Chicago team in the American League. Does anybody really look at it like that? No. I think you just look at who, whoever had the stronger year. The only splitting of the vote could take place with that local chapter in, in the BBWA eh? because you, you anticipate if a guy had a really strong year that the guy that covers him is probably going to put someone that they've seen every single day a little bit higher, give them a little bit more... Uh, credence to their performance because they witnessed it in person and they know how important that type of of production might have been. So in the case of two guys fighting from the same team, you don't get that little boost that you would get here locally. So I guess you could be looking at something like that too in Cleveland, whether you go Bieber, whether you go Ramirez. But as far as nationally, I don't think that splits the vote. I don't think people are looking at, I can only vote for one guy from one team and the other guy just gets left completely off my ballot. That's not how this works. Can they do like debates? Can we turn this into like political <laughs> landscape? Like that's sure. I need more information. 
Yeah, right. At, at this point, though, I think the the baseball MVP debates might be more serious than the actual real political debates, which Have would just be... Have you seen more Ramirez yard signs or Bieber <laughs> yard signs around uh, Ohio? Uh, I don't... Who, how would they go in the Supreme, Supreme Court? Who, who would they nominate? Would they nominate anybody? This is things I need to know. Uh, I, so to who separate... Who would you vote for right now? To separate this, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know, because if I... If I try to think this through logically, I arrive at a different outcome no matter which direction I go. It's like a choose-your-own-adventure book, but there's 42 endings, and all of them I get beat up at the end by some fan base. I don't like this book. Let's put this book down. <laughs> Let's get rid of it. I, if I think that remind of, you of like middle school? Like No matter which hallway you walk down, <laughs> you were going to get your ass back my lunch money, man. <laughs> this is how I got to eat. Um, no, I definitely didn't go hungry. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I Thank, thank God I have a little bit of, of extra time to, to make this decision before the end of the year. And, and we are talking about smaller sample sizes. So in a regular season, does the final four or five games matter that much in the MVP voting? Maybe it does a, a smidge. But in this case, because the this, this season is so condensed, if a guy goes off for the last four games, it, it could lift him higher than anybody else on the, the war leaderboard. You can have, I, I don't know. Who, who to even, I mean, let's say DJ LeMahieu, who doesn't have the, the amount of games that some other guys do, uh, but has just been out of this world. He's carrying a, a 181 WRC plus as we record this on Tuesday uh, and entering the day. If, if he just goes off over this last week and that is really important, really important in the context of what the Yankees are doing, who's to say that he can't just climb into the, the leaderboard front seat, the driver's seat? That's why it's so weird because you wouldn't have that happen where six or seven guys could legitimately jump to the front of the line just by having a really good four or five games, but that's the case this year. Well, we have four of the prime contenders here in Cleveland the next few days, so can't we just get Bieber, Ramirez, Abreu, and Anderson in a ring for a tag team <laughs> match? You make it hell in a cell if you want, or ladder match, and let them decide it that way. Who would win in a two-on-two tag team match uh, i mean I, like abreu's a big dude but ramirez yeah. seems scrappy yeah like I, I don't think he would hesitate to to bend the rules if he had to uh yeah I'm not sure okay I'm, let me ask you this if bieber exits when he should have exited on thursday night yeah and he doesn't throw 118 pitches. Well, it was really important that he, that he do that because the game was hanging in the balance. <laughs> if his ERA was sitting at 137. Oh, it was 10-0? Okay, that's yeah. what I'm being told. Sorry. <laughs> if his ERA was 137, does that make any difference? Like, legitimately, yeah. does yes, that make yes, a difference? Yes, yes, because we're talking about these smaller samples where that could... To, to have an ERA that low stands out to a voter. If you're looking at down the, the ER, DRA list, it's really tough to ignore an ERA like that. And that's not to say that he's not fantastic at where he's at now, but if you remove three runs from the, from the equation, that would absolutely have uh, some sort of impact in voters' minds. I don't know if it would change my mind completely, but we're, I mean, we'd still be talking about a guy, I mean, his, his war over at baseball reference would be higher because he would have, not giving up those runs that he was charged with. I don't know how much it would have impacted things at Fangraphs because it's looking at you know things like strikeouts and walks and and home runs, essentially the things that a pitcher can control. So I don't know how much it impacts it over there on that leaderboard, but yeah, I think a 130 ERA looks a heck of a lot different than 174, which is already sparkling. So yeah, it does have some sort of impact. So you're blaming Sandy Alomar? If Shane Bieber doesn't win MVP, <laughs> I think a good manager or one that is at least learning the ropes is one that takes the blame and puts it on himself. How many times have we heard Tito say that those runs should have been charged to me because I put that guy in that position? Well, I have a conspiracy theory about that. Jeez. Yes. What was our uh, listener's name who loved when we talked conspiracy? <laughs> I, I'm not sure. We still have a way to go to become the top conspiracy podcast in the world. Conspiracy theory. You know, Sandy Almar, he didn't even go out to the mound until Shane Bieber had thrown 114 pitches 
and then he left the decision in Bieber's hands. Everybody knows no pitcher is going to, if given the option, choose to come out of a game. So, I was thinking about this. And I know Sandy Elmar said, basically, if he could do it over again, you know, he might have done things differently, learned his lesson, whatever. I don't think it was his call. I think that came from up above. No, not Chris Antonetti's office, not Mike Chernoff's office. Look, Bieber's going to win the Cy Young Award. That's a no-doubter, even if he gets shelled in his final tune-up. But if he wins MVP, all of a sudden you start thinking ahead. He's going to hit arbitration here coming up in a couple years. It's going to get expensive. He can always point to uh, winning the MVP at the age of 25 in his second full season. He's already got the All-Star Game MVP in the bag. Think about what that price tag might be in arbitration. It wasn't Alomar. It wasn't Antonetti. It wasn't Chernoff. It was Dolan all along. Yes, the owner of the Indians wanting to make sure Bieber remains affordable. Bieber <laughs> remains an Indian. He sent the bat signal to the Indians dugout and said, keep him out there. We need that ERA to soar. We need his MVP chances to plummet. For a second, I thought we were going to blame this on Betsy Kling again. Poor Betsy. I, I didn't know if we were going the, the aliens route or, or something else. So I, I guess props to you for coming up with something that doesn't quite involve extraterrestrials. <laughs> is that your final answer? Is that... Is that, is that no, your... I mean, that's, that's obviously not what happened, but, you know. <laughs> but can you prove that it's not what not happened? Absolutely not, no. Hmm. I don't have any evidence that it didn't take place, so I can't rule it out completely. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, he should not have thrown 118 you do, you pitches. Do raise we some, all agree. You, yes, but you do raise some good points about what does that do to a potential extension. I mean, he's going to walk in there with all the ammunition – that he would need to say, uh, I think I should get paid more than whatever you're going to offer me. The dude is making, I mean, <sighs> the minimum is like 550000 this year, and players are getting, what, 37% of that, something like that? The Indians are getting a little bit of surplus value out of him this year, I would say. Yeah, I, I have no idea what that the extension would look like. I mean, you texted me that, whatever it was, a week ago, what it would look like. Last year, we talked about on this podcast, we're both he and Clevenger that it would have looked something like what, what Kluber got, but now uh, you can make a case that he deserves more than what Kluber got. Kluber didn't win the MVP. Um, Cy Young. Yes, but not MVP. So I mean, he's that a top, changes things. He's a top 10, maybe top five valuable entity in baseball. Right? Sure. Yeah. I mean, you think about some of the pre-arb position players like a Tatis, Juan Soto, but he's, I think teams value pitchers a little lower just because of the injury risk, but I would think, and, and he's 25, he's not 21, but he's right behind that. Yeah, group, well, thankfully the Indians have been able to save that, that surplus value of guys like Bieber and, and Jose Ramirez that they're, they're paying under value and been able to, to transform their outfield with all this extra dough that they've got lying around. Oof. I think heaven's for that. I think, and we don't need to get into this discussion. Getting handed this another is... note here that says the outfield still feels very <laughs> Who's much. Who's handing you these notes? In question, my cat. Yeah, he's oh. he's he's all over this. I mean, that's that's I think the if you're an Indians fan, maybe the most frustrating part about the last five years is that like the front office has done the right things in terms of um like developing the like they had the rotation that they've had has been so cheap. Your star players have been so underpaid, and yet you still can't capitalize on that. Yeah, well, we don't need to go into all that right now because we've spent uh, a few podcasts talking about that, and uh, we've discussed offense in the last podcast and all the things that have been uh, tough to watch as far as that goes. Okay, so we, we, we touched on Sandy, his managing. You know, it's something that – and, and – we should acknowledge to begin with that he was thrown into this situation, a position he shouldn't be in because it's, it's not his team. Uh, he wasn't hired to be the manager go into this year thinking that 
Terry Francona is going to be there for the entire year. Well, he, he hasn't been for pretty much the entire season. And the guy that would have been in that chair if Tito wasn't there, uh, Milsey is not there either. So he's in a position where going into this year, did he think that he was going to be managing this team for most of the year? No. So, and he has so very little experience with that outside of a few games in the, the interim direction at the end of, of 2012. So part, you know, I'm trying, I'm trying to be as fair as possible to Sandy because you go, if you think you're going to be the manager, you know, you're going to be the manager. You have a certain thought process that you've walked through and you've, you maybe have spent more time thinking about and dealing with certain situations than, than Sandy, who's been thrown into this, uh, whether he wanted it or not, which is what's going to be the case. But as far as his managing goes, at the beginning, when he first stepped in, I thought he was print, doing a pretty solid job. Here lately, he has made so many moves and so many decisions that leave me scratching my head. I know it's not all on Sandy. It is a, uh, a collaborative effort between the coaches, but somebody still has to be the guy that's making the ultimate decisions. He has to be the leader when, when Tito is not in there. And so that falls on Sandy. So where are you at on with some of the decision-making? And I know you've written recently just that, that Sandy recognizes some of the mistakes and is trying to learn from them. Do you get a sense that, that he is making better decisions or that he is learning from his mistakes or that maybe more importantly is learning that, learning what he could have done differently in certain situations? Yeah, it's weird. Like, I want to start by saying I think it's unfair to say, like, because I've seen it all over the place, where, like, the good thing is we've seen Sandy manage and it's been terrible, so now we know he's not the heir apparent to Terry Francona. I think that's a little unfair. This is a really, really tough situation. It's not just... The fact that he's replaced Terry Francona and he's got to be the one pulling all the levers and deciding which reliever to turn to at which point and who's going to pinch hit and you know when are you going to bunt and when are you not and what's your strategy for extra innings and what's the lineup going to look like every night. But keep in mind, Terry Francona always had his right-hand man, Brad Mills, next to him, and they were always on the same wavelength. And so who knows how many times Francona would have made a terrible decision, but Mills talked him into the right move. Um, you've got a completely different coaching staff. There's no Mills, no Francona, no Ty Van Berkeleo. Mike Sarbaugh's in the dugout now. So you have new first and third base coaches, which might explain why they've made more outs on the bases than any other team. And he, he's, it's not the greatest roster to work with either. I mean, he can't, it's not his decision to have three, light hitting catchers on the roster or, you know, Domingo Santana forever, or these, these fourth outfielders. That's, I don't want to excuse him because he has made some really head scratching decisions on almost a nightly basis for the last couple weeks. And look, we challenged him on it. Um, there have been nights where he doesn't seem too pleased that he's being second guessed, but he also has been able to admit, and I appreciate the candor that He's not perfect and he is learning and he didn't ask for this sort of responsibility. And it's not, it's not something you can just walk into and take on and it be second nature. Um, so I, I think it's tough too, because like Terry Francona has been a manager for the better part of a quarter of a century. That is so much learning from failure. Oh yeah. I mean, he, I mean, how much has he talked about Philadelphia? Right. How much yeah. has he talked about the mistakes and missteps that he made in Philadelphia at and length? Even even at the end of his run in Boston, I mean, he clearly had to learn some things to make sure that that didn't repeat itself. So, and that doesn't even speak to the the in game tactical decisions you have to make. Where Francona's managed thousands of games, Sandy Almar's managed he had been managed six coming into this season. So, it's it's tough. And I mean, maybe he's not the heir apparent. Maybe this is enough information to know that there is a better option out there whenever Francona officially retires. But I, I do think it is um, an unenviable position that he's been put in. He doesn't have, you know, he's, he's conferencing with Carl Willis and Mike Sarba about a lot of different things. So it's not like this is every decision that's made is just his. You know, they have data from the front office. Um, 
And that, again, that doesn't excuse it because I don't understand why you're sending up pinch hitters to bunt in front of Sandy Leone and Delano DeShields. I don't understand why Bieber's throwing 118 pitches in a 10-run blowout or why you're giving him the option to talk you into letting him stay in the game or why Sandy Leone is pinch hitting in the eighth inning of a critical spot against the Cubs. I mean, the list goes on and on. Um, so, no, I don't think it's been, like, the greatest audition, but I yeah. don't know how many people would have been able to step in unexpectedly and just thrive in this sort of role. Yeah, and there's so much that, again, to be fair, that we don't know. We're not operating on all the, all of the facts. We don't know exactly how this coaching staff operates in and out like we do when they're they're running it uh, at, at at their normal capacity because we've we've grown so familiar with what a Tito staff looks like. And even if if there are changes, we kind of know what role certain guys play and what they're responsible for. And now with with Sandy, we don't we don't know that, and we don't know who's in his ear. We don't know what information he's being fed and what is truly his choice, what it maybe is coming from above. But it, you're right, it doesn't excuse some of the other tactical decisions that just don't make a lot of sense. The more important thing is, is he going to learn from them? And to learn from them, you have to understand why the decision you made was bad to begin with. And if, if you can at least show that there's that there's an element of that, then there's some hope. But I think we always question why Sandy was still sitting as part of the staff and not managing his own team when for so long it seemed like he was going to be for sure a manager someday. Maybe we're getting a glimpse of that right now. Maybe maybe we're seeing a little bit behind the curtain in some of his interviews why he hasn't gotten a job. Or maybe we are being completely unfair. But as of right now, it is not, an, a, again, a role that would be easy for anybody to step into. And I'm not saying that it would be, but it does leave me scratching my head. And, and I have to remind myself every time I'm, I'm, I'm staring at the TV with my face <laughs> scrunched together trying to figure out what in the hell he's doing, I have to remind myself, this is also the first time he's asked to do any of this. He's been asked to do any of this, and he is not getting that learning curve that a lot of guys would get when they're stepping maybe into a team that, that isn't expected to win right off the bat uh, or has a lot of younger players, and, and he gets to, to, to go through a lot of the things that, that Terry Francona has already learned from. I mean, you mentioned the Beaver thing as far as giving him the option to come out of the game, and it, it, it struck me because I remember Tito telling us the story that you know he learned early in his managerial career that you can't go out there and give the pitcher the, the opportunity to even talk himself into it. He, Tito has, has said that he goes out there and makes the move as soon as he's coming out of the dugout so that it removes any chance of him being talked into going in a different direction. And that's something that he learned, and now he implements every single time. Coming out of the dugout, I'm making the call to the bullpen. No matter what you tell me on the mound, I've already made the choice. The guy's already coming out of the bullpen. There's nothing that can be done. And that's maybe something that Sandy's going to have to go through if he ever gets put in this position again. Yeah, and that one was weird to me too because – like, Adam Plucko hasn't pitched in 12 days. That would have been a perfect time to get him two innings of work. Cam Hill hadn't pitched since he had been promoted, so that made sense to let him finish it off. But, yeah, yeah I mean, it's, it's, it was just like chasing a shutout yeah. opportunity. And there's there's a lot to juggle this year that any manager would, would have to adapt to. I mean, you've got the three-batter minimum rule. You've got all these COVID protocols. Everybody's in different locker rooms and they're spaced out and you're arriving and leaving at different times and you're not together as often as you normally would be. Um, you've got the new extra inning rules, obviously. You've got just an expanded roster and you got to make sure that your relievers are all getting enough work but not getting too much work. I mean, it's, it's a lot to balance if you haven't been in that position. And if you weren't expecting to be in that position and then a few weeks into the season, you're thrust into it. And you don't know how long you're going to be in it. I mean, I think at the beginning of this, especially since since Tito came back after a little time away and, and managed a couple series and then left again, I mean, Sandy Elmer probably thought it was, he was back to his, his first base gig. Um, so it's, it's, it's tough. And they have an entirely different coaching staff. Everybody's in new roles. You know, he even admitted he had to learn, and, and Mike Sarbaugh has been preaching this to him all season, like, don't just do what you think Terry Francona would do in this situation. Do what you think is right. Do what you think is right after you talk to the other coaches, you look at the data, and you have all the, the evidence you need. Um, but this is, this is tough. I mean, if I had to go cover the Browns on Sunday, like, there would be a learning curve. Oh, oh it would go worse than 1 in 31? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> um, I mean, it's just... it's. 
it, it's so different when you're not anticipating. I mean, I'm, there are new managers in the league who have to deal with a lot of this new stuff, but at least they knew from the get-go what they were getting into. Yeah, you can mentally prepare for this season, unlike Sandy, who again was thrust into it. So I'm trying to be as fair as I can be to him. I have not seen a lot that makes me think, yes, that that when when Tito's ready to step down, this is a no-brainer, hand the gig to, to Sandy Alomar. And that's, I, that's I don't, the I don't... disappointing thing, is because it seemed like such a natural transition, sure. and now you're like, eh, I don't know about this. Yeah. And, and again, we don't know that, like, I've, I've thought about, you know, Mike, maybe Mike Sarbaugh is, is that guy because he does have the managerial experience in the minor leagues and um, something that he's been through as well. But I, I don't know that he would be making better decisions. He, he might be sitting there feeding information to Sandy or, or, or in his ear, telling him to do certain things. And it has been noticed those decisions that we're questioning Sandy Alomar on. So I, I don't know. It's tough to, to try to really decipher what's going on and, and it being this weird year. You can't really get to the bottom of a lot of things that you normally would. You wouldn't have, you know, in, in a normal year, you would have the opportunity to, to maybe corner some people and get some more information. But this way, it's like if uh, someone's not uh, able to jump on a Zoom call or responding to text messages, then it's kind of left to, uh, to speculate a lot. Uh, let's speculate on who should be the Indians opponent in the first round, huh? Because, you know, that's something that we could do and, of course, just pick it out easily. Anybody could just pick their opponent and know who they could beat in the first round. That's how this goes. Well, let's let's do it this way, if you don't mind. There are eight oh God, you American have another League conspiracy theory. No, I already I don't know how to get the music. It's gone. Um, there are seven other teams. I mean, I think we know the playoff field, even though there's still a few days to go. The Indians' magic number is one at the time of this recording. But can we rank the seven other American League teams in terms of the best and worst matchups for the Indians? Well, I know I would want nothing to do with playing the Yankees. Nothing. The good thing for the Indians is if they stay in the seven spot, yeah, they that's, wouldn't have to face the Yankees that's, until the ALCS. That's the weird thing. With the way that these seedings are set up, Houston is at 500, but they're the sixth seed. The Indians are three games better than Houston right now. That's six games over 500. But they're the seventh seed because one is the division leader. One would be considered the wild card. So it's it's really odd. Like over in the National League, would you want to be the team that plays the Reds in the first round? God. Hell no. God, imagine that. But yeah, that's what the Cubs would get there as their reward for being the second seed. So yeah, that that that's tough. But as far let's as start, well, let's start with this. Okay. The format. You've got a best of three. Three straight days, no off days. You've got a decent layoff because teams have to travel west and, and join the bubble. And so you'll be able to reset your pitching for the ALDS, but that's a best of five, five straight days, no off days. Then there's, I think there's like one day off after that series, and then you have the ALCS best of seven, no off days. I wrote today... The Indians are treating this as a competitive advantage. They hope it is. It should be. You think about how important pitching depth will be. You think about the fact that teams didn't know this was going to be the format until a couple, until about a week ago, week and a half ago. God, I, I um, mean, I as a GM, as a, I mean, as anybody part of a team, I'd be pissed. Yeah. I mean, even so even thinking think, of it from the Indians' perspective, would you have traded Mike Clevenger? Well, that's so. Uh, you know, the prevailing thought was the reason for trading him now was. There was a little bit of fear about what the trade market would look like this winter with everybody trying to sell and nobody buying. And now at least you had some teams interested to make a move and wanting his two and a half years of service time. But, I mean, I don't know that anybody is blown over by what they've received in return. And we've talked on this podcast before. You, you know, it doesn't look very good right now. And they'll need those prospects to pop. If it does look good, point is, could you have held on to him, had a really, really loaded rotation this playoff run and then traded him this winter yeah that probably would have been a, a decent option but is he going to be healthy he's something else he, he's battling okay so let's look at this well but so so my sorry my point was like you're going if you advance past the first round which it looks like it would be bieber police at carrasco if you advance past that best of three you know you're going to have to rely on aaron savali and maybe even tristan mckenzie though i think they would bring Bieber back on short rest for a decisive game five. 
And, but then in like the ALCS, you would need four or five starters. I mean, I'm, you're going to have to rely on starting pitching depth, and other teams are going to have to do that too. And like, I don't know that the Yankees or the White Sox or even the Twins could tell you who their fourth and fifth best starting pitchers are right yeah. now. You know so what? That's and, gonna be interesting. and you know what else this this plays a factor in? It's not just the rotation, it's the bullpen arms. You right. can't just load up and go 2016 Indians and throw Andrew Miller and, and Cody Allen and a little bit more Brian Shaw and just rely on those three arms to carry the bulk of your postseason innings because there are not going to be off days for guys right. to take a rest after he throws 50 pitches over two days. He can't those, do that. Those three relievers plus Corey Kluber accounted for 58% of the Indians' entire postseason innings in 2016. So you think about that. That, that isn't going to happen. That's not feasible in, in 2020. And so then you think about, okay, well, if you're the White Sox or the Yankees or something, and you're like, well, we might not have the starting pitching depth, but we've got loaded bullpens. So we'll just have a bullpen day in game four. Yeah, okay, maybe you do that. But, like, again, as you just said, like, you can't use these relievers every single day. So, it's, And even if you can early, you, what does that do to you later in the, yeah. the postseason? So the Indians could have some advantages here, you know, with their seating, with the format. So, all right, lead us off. Who? How do they get <laughs> to the World Series? Uh, I think uh, well, no matter what we say, it's going to come back to bite us. So if I say, I think the White Sox is a fine first-round opponent for the Indians, I think the White Sox are beatable, then of course the White Sox will go out and sweep them. That's how this works. <laughs> but, I mean, as far as opponents go, the Indians have shown in the regular season, for whatever that's worth, that they can at least handle the White Sox and they've beaten them. So I don't, I don't think the White Sox is some insurmountable foe. It's not like, when I look at the Yankees, I say, I, I would not want anything to do with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so congratulations, Minnesota, you get another first round matchup against the Yankees and an opportunity f- to send you home. That's incredible that, that those two could be meeting up again. And it's, that's the team you want to avoid. Um, well, so do we agree that Toronto and Houston are the two, I don't want to say easiest opponents. Houston, like- I, I still stop short of wanting to say that though, because you know, they, they, despite how they've played this year and that they're not at full strength, you're still talking about a team that's been really good and it only takes a few good games to change the course of October. But they are a team that offensively, they're, I mean, with the Indians, they just, they don't, their, their barrel rate as far as just balls that they hit really, really well, as far as exit velocity, launch angle, those balls that create extra base hits, essentially, they're terrible. I mean, they're not hitting the ball well at all this year. Imagine that. Uh, and I don't know how that happened. I don't know how they just went from such a really good offensive team to a team that's struggling. It's kind of odd. The one guy who's not is Michael Brantley. Yeah, props to him. It was almost like he wasn't there. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I, I think if you're thinking about this logically, Houston and Toronto, but Toronto scares the hell out of me too. It's because you have younger players that don't know how they respond. I, 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 in a three-game series, I don't. I mean, maybe you just I don't need know to stop how I'm supposed to listen. Think every team is so scary. Well, they potentially are in a three-game series. My Do you God. think other teams are looking at the Indians and saying, "Oh fuck, I don't want to play them"? Yeah, I think that there's probably a lot of that yeah. because in the postseason, when you are talking about that starting pitching, and the Indians are a team that have not slugged well this year, but if you have a red-hot Jose Ramirez with a couple of guys like Lindor and Franmil Reyes that can put one in the seats, you know, Carlos Santana, maybe if he's waking up a little bit from a, a slugging perspective, it's, they have some guys that can go deep and a well-timed right. home run in the playoffs, especially in a three game series could completely you change things. If, if Fran Reyes gets hot at the right time. So yeah. I, and what's interesting too is, and look, just because Shane Bieber's on the mound doesn't mean the opponent has zero chance of winning, but imagine being in a best of three, you played your ass off to get one of the top three seeds and win your division. And your reward is a best of three series and the AL Cy Young Award winner and maybe the MVP gets to start game one. So like your yeah. odds are you're going to have to win two games in a row or your season's over. That's ridiculous. Um, but so if the Indians stay in the seventh spot, they would face either Tampa, Chicago, or Oakland. It sounds like you think Chicago is the most beatable of those three. Maybe Oakland because they're not at full strength either. Right. We agree Tampa's the toughest? Yeah. I, 
they have been so well equipped over the years at, at being able to sub in pitchers left and right. Yeah, their offense is weird. Brandon Lau is really good. Is he Lau or is he Low? Lau. Nate Low, Brandon Lau. It's Lau. Their offense is, I don't know, it's fine. It'd be better if Yandy Diaz was healthy. Um, but you're right, their pitching is just insane. Just with how many guys they can throw at you. And in a short series, if you're facing Snell and Glass now and Charlie Morton, that's no walk in the park. Yeah. Of those of those three teams, I, st- I wonder what the unfamiliarity is going to do to these two yep. these teams this year because everybody's been playing you know their counterpart in the National League or the American League within the the same division. So there's there's nothing for Tampa Bay. There's no history this year between Tampa Bay and Cleveland or Oakland and Cleveland, New York, Houston, Toronto. They haven't seen each other. So does that when they haven't seen Zach Plesac? Right. Zach Plesac is pitching. They haven't seen Bieber like this. Right, so there's no familiarity with the pitching, uh, and I wonder who that favors. I think it's the pitchers, when you when you have, especially if a guy is doing something completely different or has altered their their repertoire or is throwing a new pitch, like we've seen with Bieber and, and Plesac, who's altered things a bit to to be really good this year. And there's I, been no scouting. That's the other thing. Yeah, scouts aren't allowed in the ballpark. Yeah, it's, uh, so I I wonder They're how watching games on TV. I wonder how much of that is going to ch- have a a big impact on these postseason games. Are we going to see a lot of low-scoring games just because teams haven't seen each other? But it, or it high-scoring is... games because it's the number five starter that you never really plan to yeah. rely on against Weird. another number five starter. Yeah, they just counteract each other on a neutral field with no no fans in the stadium. You're lacking that maybe normal October adrenaline. I don't know. I think the Indians could beat the White Sox, and th- I mean. In a three-game series, anybody can beat anybody. But I think sure. Indians and White Sox is a, a matchup that is not one that seems scary for the Indians. Could they lose a three-game series to the White Sox? Absolutely. White Sox are extremely talented. And if Lucas Giolito throws his ass off in one of those games, you lose your advantage with, with Shane Bieber. So there, and all of these teams, I mean, Toronto, maybe not. And in the National League, there are some teams that maybe you're not as concerned with over the length of an entire October, but in the short series. Like Jensen Lewis's Marlins? Yeah, weird team that I don't really know what to, to make of that. They have a guy named Sixto. Who, yeah, looks extremely uh, compelling. Who throws a hundo. Yeah. So Okay, so come on, smart guy. You tell me who you'd rather face if you're the Indians. So, in the first round, the team I want to avoid is Tampa. Um, I... Oakland is weird. Like I, you look at their individual numbers, and it's kind of like, how is this team so good? And then you look at the overall team stats. Like their bullpen is just bonkers. Um, I think they're beatable, but also I just, and I know this doesn't mean anything, but like, when was the last time the Indians went to Oakland and won a series and played well at all? Yeah, nineteen ninety two. Yeah. So you avoid them in the first round just because they can't the, win. The in, weirdest part in Oakland. is like. Like, we're getting Bieber Giolito on Wednesday. Yeah. Like, are those guys going to be, like, throwing only fastballs because they, <laughs> they don't want the other team to, to figure them out? I mean, it's... Although Giolito only throws fastballs and change-ups against the Indians anyway. Yeah. And dominates I mean, and how much are you going to fool somebody like, like the White Sox, who you've seen a billion times throughout the year? I mean, are, are, is, is, is there some sort of new game plan that you can do to throw them off the, the game plan you're going to use in the postseason? They know what you are. Everyone knows what Shane yeah. Bieber is, and he, he still excels because he's able to throw all of his pitches for strikes and puts them wherever he wants on the plate or off the plate. So I just, is I, something new there that's going to really throw everybody off? Yeah. The greatest advantage for the Indians is that if they stick in the seven seed, they'll get the winner of, if they advance, they would get the winner of Oakland and Houston. And that's so much um, more doable than having to face you know the the other second round matchup, the division series matchup is gonna. If Tampa beats Toronto, it would be Tampa, the Twins, or the Yankees. Those are probably you know the three toughest matchups for the Indians. So uh, the seeding, the the structure of the bracket works out well for them, even if they stay in the seven spot. Um, I think a, a path of the White Sox, then the 
athletics and then the Yankees is much more palatable than having to go like Tampa, Yankees, Oakland, something like that in that order, or, or White Sox. So, yeah, I don't know. It's just they're going to have to pitch their asses off. And as you said, yeah. you know, someone's got to support Jose Ramirez in that lineup. Yeah, the AL MVP, of course, as we all knew. Wait, Bieber's batting? <laughs> so you ready for the random inning of the day? I guess. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I stumped you with Roy Smith. Yeah, who would have thought? I'm sure you'll get payback here. Uh, and I don't think this guy was on the list that we received as a guy that we've utilized before. So I, I hope so. This man was born on December 2nd, 1982. Oh, of course. Um, that would be Fernando Cabrera. What if you just nailed it right there? How amazing would that have been? So that makes him 37 years old as of today. He played 22 games in the major leagues in his career. He played 19 games with the Indians in his career. The year was 2009. Oh, God. Over those 19 games, he amassed 60 plate appearances, in which he put up a slash line of 176, 267, 196. For an OPS of 463. Solid. So that was 72% worse than the league average OPS that year. God, it doesn't get worse than 2009-2010 Indians baseball. He also played three games with the Pittsburgh Pirates two years later in 2011. That was the end of his big league career. He went 0 for 4 with a strikeout. So his uh, final major league line, 164, 250, 182. A 432 OPS. I'm guessing you have nothing to say so far? No. Did you tell me his position? I did not. Now, if a guy is getting almost 20 games where he's just not hitting at all, but he's still playing, it should maybe tell you something about the position. Juan Diaz? No, not Juan Diaz. Wrong position. Oh, catcher. Yeah, he's, so he's a catcher. Wyatt Terregas. It is Wyatt Terregas. Wow. I didn't know he played that much. Yeah, I didn't have uh, a lot of memory of him doing that in 2009. But yeah, that was it. Just uh, 19 games with the Indians, 22 overall in the major leagues. And that was it. That was it for him as far as a a big leaguer. I always wonder, guys like that, do you remember every single detail about those three weeks? I would think so. Yeah. Like, I remember talking. Remember Mark Budzinski? He was on the Indians coaching staff for... Was it just one yeah. year? A couple years ago? Mm-hmm. And he had, I think, seven at-bats over four games, and that was his whole major league career. He was 0 for 7. And he took me through every at-bat. <laughs> it was great. It's amazing. Uh, I always marvel at LeBron's ability to just recall plays. Mm-hmm. And imagine, I mean, a guy that has played so many years and played all those postseason games, and he can still, still recall uh, – events like they happened yesterday. So I would imagine something as important to you as playing in the major leagues, I, I would think you would probably recall every single detail. And luckily, if you didn't, if you forgot anything, there's baseball reference to remind you exactly how good or poor your career went. According to Wikipedia, Wyatt Teragas is the uh, manager of the single-A advanced affiliate of the Pirates in Braden- cool. Bradenton, the Marooters. So uh, he is still in the game of baseball. He was drafted by the Indians in the 24th round of the 04 draft. Uh, and then uh, he signed with the Pirates a couple of times in uh, 11, 2011. And then that was it. That was the end of the big league career. Hey, good for him. Made it to the show. He's got a baseball card. Some numbers on the back. And the most important thing that we all need to know, would he have left Shane Bieber in for 118 pitches? My God. Subscribe to the show, Apple Podcasts, Google, Stitcher, Spotify. You can find us at Anchor. Appreciate everybody who leaves us a five-star review. Any final words? Just maybe think about things more than once. They might not always be what they seem. How many times would you suggest? Twice? Three times? Yeah, that's it. That's part of it.
Shout out to Mike and Greppas, who left us five-star reviews recently on the podcast, as well as David Gonzalez. You also left us a five-star review over at Apple Podcasts. Helps everybody find the show and helps grow the show. And that's really all. And remember our rule. That's all we care about. You leave us a five-star review, we owe you a beer. That's your rule, not mine. Until next yeah, time. I owe a lot of people beers. <laughs> Maybe next time when we talk, we'll actually have some sort of finality in the MVP race, of which you'll be able to share nothing because you'll your votes will actually be in. But if you uh, can find me, I'm probably going to flee the country by then, <laughs> so I don't have to submit it. Uh, I'm going to blame it on those aliens. Until next time, be good, everybody, and uh, we'll be back to talk about playoffs. Are you kidding me? Playoffs? Bye. Godcast featuring Zach Meisel and TJ Zuppi is presented by our supporters at Anchor. To help support the podcast, visit anchor.fm slash Godcast. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you hear, we sure hope you do, be sure to leave us a five-star review. And if you have suggestions, drop us a DM on Twitter at Godcast. Thanks for listening. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline.